My name is Justin LeClue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're talking about Arthur J. Bresson. And who is this, Will? Arthur J. Bresson Jr. was one of the pioneers of queer cinema, at least in, in an American context. You know, there was once a popular perception, I think, that gay cinema history really began in the 80s and 90s with, you know, Gus Van Sant and Todd Haynes. Oh, the classics like, uh-oh, cruising. <laughs> well, I don't know about that one. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, the history of marginalized groups is often written in the margins. And this is the case with Arthur J. Bresson Jr., a true pioneer. But also a filmmaker that many believed may have been forgotten in the margins because a lot of his films were not widely available. He has not been written about very much. And it's only recently, thanks to places like Vinegar Syndrome and the amazing work by Elizabeth Perchel, that we've been able to discover his stuff. There is some amazing Blu-rays that have been released of his movies like Buddies and also a double bill of Passing Strangers and forbidden letters that finally you can see his work the way it was meant to be seen there's also an initiative called the bresson project led by his sister roe bresson who has worked to restore some of the films we were interested in talking about him because there's a new blu-ray that just came out via a vinegar syndrome partner label called altered innocence that collects two of his early films passing strangers and forbidden letters and a beautifully restored double feature with a lot of extras. But wait a minute, Will. These are pornos? That is true. So Arthur J. Bresson's career is interesting because there are sort of two movies that are the likeliest candidates for canonization. Okay, there's in 1977, he made an important documentary about gay America called Gay USA. And in 1985, he wrote and directed a film called Buddies, which was the first American dramatic film about the AIDS crisis. And if you looked at his letterbox a couple of years ago, you'd assume, well, these are clearly the only two films that he's ever made other than the shorts. But that's because the rest of his career was done in gay pornography. Uh, yes, they are gay erotic films, but they're also political films. And there is a very coherent worldview. There are recurring stylistic motifs in both his mainstream and his pornographic films. They're all of a piece, essentially. And they're also very good. I think oh, yeah. that's very important because when we gave that whole intro, you'd assume that then we would couch it in, well, you know, you have to consider he was the first, so he was discovering this stuff. And no, throw all of that out because these movies are just great. They're some of the like the best pornos, period, as far as their intended goals and their execution. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wanted to. Uh, explore him more because I watched Passing Strangers a couple weeks ago, not for the podcast, just uh, out of curiosity. And I was just kind of blown away by how good it was. And I should just say, you can do a lot better on this subject than us. The new Blu-ray has audio commentaries by Elizabeth Purcell. And honestly, uh, they're, they're just dense with information. Also, her podcast, Ask Anybody, has done a number of episodes on Bresson's films, as well as other gay pornography, they just did one on his film Daddy Dearest. So consider us a tiny little stepladder that will hopefully lead you to more <laughs> stuff if you don't already have any circles that those doors are present for you. That's right. We're discovering this stuff with you. Mm -hmm. But you're right. The films are very interesting. And, you know, there are certain authorial signatures that you can see, at least in all four of the movies that I watched for this podcast. He's interested in film within a film structures. He's interested in the, in the making of movies themselves. 
often in his gay porn films, there will be a scene where people are in a seedy movie theater watching like a mediocre gay porn film as if to say to the audience, okay, this is what you normally get. And the rest of the movie is going to be a whole lot different and better. Well, we can start with his first porn film, Passing Strangers, and jump around a little bit. Passing Strangers was released in 1974. It was his first feature film. He had made a documentary previously called Coming Out. And Passing Strangers, Bresson went in with like very different definitive goals in his mind, that he had watched a lot of gay pornography before making his own, something that he admitted he wasn't that familiar with, and he picked up all of these traits, like the fact that oftentimes they're based on power, that there's very little story to them or attachment to the characters on screen, and he wanted to do something different. And his influences are directly from his love of movies, because he was a big movie guy. He actually interviewed Frank Capra, who was one of his favorites, and according to some special features on the Blu-ray, he even had a correspondence with Capra and talked about uh, the movie Passing Strangers. And Capra said, listen, if it is based in a real love story, I can see that it has some value there because Capra was not a very uh, left-leaning guy, if you will. Well, I think he also added that, listen, I'm against pornography. I'm That's against right. homosexuality. Uh, uh, however, if it's a film about love and tenderness, it sounds, oh, yeah, it sounds, good. It sounds a bit like it happened one night, as a matter of fact. People reading letters, people writing letters is the structure to the majority of of Bresson's films. I'd also say that most of the movies that I saw at least are structured around kind of a kind of a dialectic. There's often a conversation. There are mm -hmm. often characters who represent different generations, different points of view and you know, in, in Buddies, which we'll get to later, like there's a big generational divide between one of the characters who's an early gay liberation guy and another character who is a mid-80s younger gay yuppie and more of an assimilationist. And Bresson, I think, clearly identifies more with the early gay lib guy, but the movies are interesting because it, it's hard being gay in America in the late 70s and early 80s. There are no villains in these movies exactly, except for the looming specter of Anita Bryant. Oh. So he can see the points of view of all of these characters, and, and he's he's interested in these political conversations. He considers them conversations. Even in Passing Stranger, he very smartly structures the film, which is about a young 18-year-old man uh, replying to a letter that he finds in a magazine and starting a relationship relationship with an older gay man, he allows the guy who wrote the letter in the magazine to have a conversation with a friend of his who's a projectionist to allow humanity to come out of this. So like the older man isn't a mysterious or threatening figure that there's a other side of him that's revealed while you're seeing all of these people kind of get together in this relationship. Passing Strangers is set in San Francisco. It does tell this love story between an 18-year-old high school student who's sort of looking to break into gay life in the big city, and a 28-year-old veteran, you know, somebody who is well used to cruising the bathhouses and adult movie theaters and Polk Street and all the other spots. They meet through the personal ads, and the first half, where they're communicating only through letters, is in black and white. But in the second half, which starts with them having this erotic rendezvous in the park, it's finally an... Uh, full glorious color and then a lot of the second half is devoted to documentary footage of i think the first 
I, I wasn't called Gay Pride Parade then. Gay but, Day? Yeah, yeah, the first Gay Day Parade. And this is another motif that runs throughout a lot of his movies. The, the boundaries between documentary and fiction are quite porous in these films. Also, the second half is very much dedicated to sex and lots of it. There is a lot of uh, fucking and or sucking in the movie, uh, often quite artfully photographed, I would say. <laughs> Literally on rocks <laughs> with crashing waves. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and something about his camera makes it look more comfortable than it probably was mm-hmm. especially when you're outside under those trees looks like a beautiful sight but whoo, what a stressful thing was probably to shoot and just to roll around in that grass but anyway you see a lot of the actual sites you see a lot of historic events from the time and it's just another example of how the history of of a group like this is often told in a movie like this i mean this movie I don't know what its reception was in the gay press at the time. I mean, probably positive. I don't know. But as a porn film, I think, you know, most porn films were just basically treated as garbage. Most most porn films, especially gay porn films, the negatives were just thrown out. And if they exist at all, they exist in like VHS dupes. And I think that what's important about this film is it's a very romantic one as well. I was trying to think about it. Are there many even straight porns that are like romantic? You know, not quite to this extent. I mean, the Wakefield Pool movies have certain moments of tenderness in Mm -hmm. them. I know that when Wakefield Pool made Boys in the Sand, he did it sort of in a response to the early gay porn film that he thought was so ugly and degrading. But this one is very tender and sweet. Yeah, you get the kind of wants and needs behind both of these characters. The young man who is looking for a relationship, he's played by someone one that Bresson just met outside and formed a, a kind of actor-director relationship with. And there's a kind of innocence there. And when you see him, like, looking in the mirror, because he has to take a photo of himself and send it to the guy, you see him, like, picturing himself, like, as a clown, as an ugly person. And finally, he gets the courage up by imagining himself masturbating in front of a group of people that just applaud after he finishes, which is just a kind of imagination, even, like, Fellini-esque, if you will, of this movie and most of Brennan's filmography. Now, Gay USA from 1977 is this ambitious documentary that chronicles gay Freedom Day marches that took place in, I think, six American cities. And it emerged in a specific context. In June 1977, California was had just announced this ballot initiative, the Briggs Initiative, which would overturn a lot of gay rights in, in the state. Meanwhile, Anita Bryant, the, uh, the the great villain of the gay community at this time, famous singer who basically devoted her life at this point to being an anti-gay I activist. I cannot believe she's still alive. She's still alive. I can't <laughs> believe it. I mean, you, you never hear from her anymore. Mm-hmm. I think she's basically kind of cons- living in a cave. She went bankrupt twice. Probably nobody wants anything to do with her. I think she used to have like big endorsement deals that after a while. Well, she would... used to be an orange juice model, That's I right. believe. And it got pulled away when she got really involved in her anti-gay crusade and in addition the other big event was a couple of days before the parades there was a gay man named robert hillsborough who had been fatally beaten in san francisco it was this very horrific hate crime that was major news at the time so this event uh, or these events were happening in this shadow and i think you can see in this documentary it's quite a joyous movie there's a lot of good feeling in it but there are always you know, moments of tension or just strange like feelings happening on the edges of it that are that are there too. But I think what's important about this movie is that 
it is joyous and it's spread across hundreds of people that you see in this movie, whether it just be faces that are passing in the crowd or people that answer the interviewers questions talking about how they came out, how it was important for them, why they're here and just so many faces and stories that resonate even today hearing all this stuff. And you can imagine in 1977, like a lot of people had never seen this many gay people on screen. So this documentary is not just seminal, but it's also very impactful then and now. Well, it's interesting seeing this documentary just in the current context, because now if you see a gay pride parade, there are all these corporate logos. There are like, you know, uh, the cops are sometimes, in them. (laughs) you know, various conservative institutions are in there. You know, probably if you've got a conservative mayor, he's probably in the parade, too. But here, like the parades are very messy and they're big and they don't have beautiful floats or anything. It's just hundreds and hundreds of people in the streets. Yeah, you hear a lot of stories in this documentary of people realizing they were gay or feeling like feeling for the very first time that they didn't feel like an outcast in society. They're surrounded by people, you know, gay people, as well as a lot of straight liberals who are there to sort of show that they're straight, but not narrow, Mm -hmm. you know, that that kind of thing. But there are also quite a few debates that happen throughout the movie. There's an interesting section on the use of drag. You hear from one lesbian woman who says that she really hates the use of drag because she's like, oh, this is gay male privilege. You know, they can affect the signifiers of female oppression. You know, they can wear these clothes that are used to to oppress us, and then they can discard it at the end of the day. And then you hear from a drag queen who says, no, that's not how I feel about it at all. I feel this is just an expression of my sexuality. This I'm is- glad we've gotten past all that. And, uh-oh! <laughs> it's different now, just in the sense that there's just been so much discourse on transness and gender mm-hmm. fluidity that's not present in this documentary. Uh, you know, it's an interesting moment in time, and we're watching this documentary, you and I are watching it in this current moment where this new, very vociferous anti-LGBTQ backlash that's happening, you know, like you're hearing just so much about so-called grooming, so much repressive legislation, particularly in the red states, but you know, all over a lot of the stuff that you're seeing in this documentary is happening just again, but in a whole new, in a different, slightly different guise. Yeah, it's like it never really went away and it's coming back now. (laughs) That's why I was quite moved by the section in this documentary where it's talking about how the Nazis persecuted gay people. And that it doesn't really get discussed that much, the fact that they used to put pink triangles on them. I saw somebody tweeting today, I, I wish I could remember who, who posted this, but they said something like, okay, what happens if trans people lose the trans debate? Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, it's a, it's a good question. Like, we know what happens if trans people lose the trans debate. They, yeah, if only there was some kind <laughs> of poem that uh, led us down the path, but uh, I don't think anything like that has ever been written. Anyway, Gay USA, a very moving film, and, uh, you know, recently remastered as well. You can find a beautiful version. You can rent and rent it on Vimeo. And, I mean, there's footage in this documentary from Triumph of the Will. I think the two movies, this movie and Triumph of the Will, they're kind of similar in certain ways, just in terms of the ways they were made. Mm-hmm. And I could imagine Bresson almost thinking this movie was a rejoinder to Triumph for the will because Triumph for the will is like rigid lockstep formations but this movie is just this kind of joyous all over the place all sorts of opinions and points of view and I like this movie better wow shocking (laughs) opinion from Will Sloan what an iconoclast uh, sticking it to Lenny Riefenstahl in 2022 Gay USA is not a film that gets discussed that much even today even as seminal
original as it is. So hopefully bad. that's changing now that there's like a remastered version. While Triumph of the Will is still kind of like dredged out and shown in university classrooms. It's just like Triumph of the Will is just like this immovable part of the canon at this point. It's just this rock in the middle of the canon. And Birth of the Nation, Triumph of the what, Will. What are we going to do about it? I don't know. <laughs> so moving on, the next film that Bresson was able to complete was Forbidden Letters in 1979. And this was a long process. It took him, some people estimate, about four years to get it done before it came out. And when you look at it, you go, oh, yeah, that makes sense. This is not a porno that was shot in like six days. <laughs> I was interested to learn that in 1974 and 1975, he had started making a heterosexual porn comedy called Inside Norma Garland. And what was this movie supposed to be? Well, it was supposed to be like a kind of like behind the scenes look at the porno industry with one of the actors in Forbidden Letters. And from there's not that much information. Uh, Elizabeth talks about it on the commentary for Forbidden Letters. It seems that a lot of it was shot and it just never got completed. And Bresson was working on the film like up until he passed away, still writing new scenes for it. It would have been curious to see what what does a heterosexual movie by Arthur J. Bresson Jr. look like? I don't know. Well, Bresson said that he always wanted to make straight films. Mm -hmm. Like he wanted to be a Frank Capra-like figure. Or a George Cukor or someone mm -hmm. like that. And even in this movie that never got made, he would have a flashback with gay elements in it. So it would always be part of his DNA. But unfortunately, like the funding couldn't come through. He couldn't get it made. So he went back to completing this porno, Forbidden Letters, which again came out in 1979. And like Passing Strangers, it is about a relationship that is covered through letter writing. But in this case, it's about a relationship of a man that's in prison and the lover that he has who isn't sure what it's going to be like when this guy gets out of prison. So yeah, it's structured through these letters, letters that he's afraid to send to the guy in prison, because if the guy in prison is outed as being gay. And this is based on something that happened to Bresson, which he sent letters to someone who had advertised in one of the magazines, and one of them was taken away and marked with, oh, this is, is seemingly meant for the woman's prison, right? Based mm -hmm. on the language that you're using in this. And he got scared and he just stopped writing letters to the prisoner. It's hard enough for anyone in prison, but then if they're outed as gay, I mean, just think of the multitude of issues that that could cause, not least just with the parole board. So, you know, what's it, it's almost like this, I mean, not officially, but effectively state-sanctioned closeting of a person. And if Passing Strangers is a joyous gay porno, Forbidden Letters is a kind of nervous gay porno. It's bittersweet. Mm -hmm. it's, it's got a lot of melancholy, a lot of sadness. In the commentary, Elizabeth Purchell and Caden Mark Gardner talk a lot about how, like, during the long gestation, during the long filming process for this movie, everything that I mentioned earlier, you know, the Briggs Initiative, Anita Bryant, the killing of Robert Hillsborough happened, you know, during the production of this movie. Movie and it almost kind of tinted the film, you know, it, it added this melancholy air to it. And I think they also discussed that if he had been able to complete it earlier or done some other scripts that he had written, it would have also been an angrier film. Mm -hmm. But it's more melancholic because it took so long to actually get out into the world. And even when it was completed... He, they couldn't even get it to play anywhere because distributors would say, oh, there's too much black and white footage in this movie because most of the present is shot in black and white. And they wanted, you know, more sex scenes. They didn't want this kind of like narrative.
narrative that sex scenes would be involved in? Well, you know, the movie's 75 minutes long on the Blu-ray, and the recent Blu-ray is the first time that the uncut version's actually been released on home video, because when it was originally released on video, Bresson cut 15 minutes out of it to make it easier to sell. Cut out a lot of the poetry of it, obviously, to make it look like it had more sex. Yeah, you actually don't even learn why uh, the man in prison, played by Richard Holt Locke, who was a big gay porn actor that actually used his real name. We didn't even talk about this, that like Bresson didn't take a pseudonym on these films because he was proud of what he was doing. Quite unusual in that regard. He regarded all of these films as personal films. So Forbidden Letters is, again, just a beautiful film that is almost Bergman-esque at times. There's like one sex scene early on that's shot almost all in silhouette uh, in like just gorgeous black and white up against a wall. This is another motif that he likes. He likes cocks in silhouette. And folks, who doesn't? And he also likes the perception of the viewer and either their imagination or movies. There's a scene where the young man is watching a gay porno and then it cuts to him watching it like as if he was there on set as it was happening. But it's not an erotic thing. It's more of a distancing thing because he is just stone faced as it's happening. By the way, actually shot on Alcatraz. Mm -hmm. Uh, They they got permission from the National Parks organization that was running it. And um, they said they just had people that made sure that whoever was administrating the prison that day, there were no nude people when they came around. But yeah, there's a lot of masturbating that's happening in actual Alcatraz in the movie. And apparently it was filming around the same time as Clint Eastwood and Don (laughs) Siegel's Escape from Alcatraz. Clint Eastwood could have walked into somebody just, you know, jerking off. So, you know, it just goes to show you how deep and multifaceted film history is. You know, Clint Eastwood's shooting a movie and then just on the other side of the lot. Someone's shooting a load. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) So Forbidden Letters, as we mentioned, was very difficult for Bresson to distribute. So his next film, Abuse, which came out in 1983, he... It wasn't a gay porno, but it was a very difficult subject matter dealing with uh, child abuse and a documentarian who kind of gets involved in this kid's life, a 14-year-old, and starts making a documentary about his abuse, but also starts having a relationship with the kid, which is very problematic, and the film is very aware about that as well. And it was another film that it's just difficult to distribute, that like he couldn't get anyone to carry it, especially it was also shot in black and white. Good movie? You liked it? Yeah, it's a great movie. Unfortunately, it's unavailable other than like a really fuzzy VHS copy. Another one that definitely needs to be saved by a company, hopefully, uh, and put it out there on Blu-rays like they did with his last feature film, Buddies. So after Abuse, he made a number of adult erotic films, Daddy Dearest, Juice, Pleasure Beach. I know those movies don't have quite the same reputation as the earlier ones, although, uh, as I understand, they are still auteurist works. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, I would I would like to see those movies at some point. But Buddies in 1985, yeah, this is his last movie. As we said earlier, it's the first American dramatic film about the AIDS crisis. I learned from the Blu-ray extras that it was made very quickly. It was shot in May, it was edited in July, and then it premiered in September, almost as this like this like burst of energy and creativity. It's a two-hander. It's set mostly at a New York hospital where a character named Robert, played by Jeff Edholm, is dying painfully of AIDS. And the hospital has a buddy program where AIDS patients who have no contact with friends or family are assigned a volunteer to talk to them and keep them company. And what you get is a conflict between this young man uh, played by David Shader 
and this patient that's just dying in the bed. Like, he's sick from frame one. We see him there. He's alone. And this person he doesn't know comes and he just wants to help him because he's been typesetting a book on the AIDS epidemic. And he feels that this is something that he could, you know, help with. He's coming from a positive place. But at the same time, like all of Bresson's other films, there is journal entries that are being done by the young man. And he says right at the beginning, he doesn't even know if he's doing it for the patient or he's doing it for himself. David, the younger man who's 25, wants to assimilate. When they're watching a pride parade together on TV, David feels that the gay label alienates him from the rest of the world. Whereas Robert, who's 32, feels that pride is a moment where the world actually lets him feel like he belongs. And as you mentioned, David is editing this book, you know, something like The AIDS Reader, and it's collecting essays from all points of view. And that includes people who are religious fundamentalists, people who think that AIDS is God's retribution on gay people for uh, their hideous behavior. And, you know, Bresson, I think, is clearly on Robert's side in these debates. And the movie ends in such a way as to confirm that. But the movie wouldn't be interesting if David was just this, like, straw man assimilationist, you mm-hmm. know? It's like... He's in a long-term monogamous relationship. He's comfortable, lives in a gigantic apartment. Mm-hmm. Well, you can tell that Robert, he has suffered in life. And boy, this movie is just great, though. Oh, <laughs> like, oh, it is so, so moving. good. So profoundly moving. And, you know, it's important to look at this movie in the context of 1985, where there's this epidemic that is being ignored well yeah it's just doing a genocide on Mm -hmm. an entire community and the president of the united states won't even say the word aids you know the president's best friend rock hudson is dying of aids and they won't even acknowledge rock hudson like that's what they're up against you know you look at it from the david character's perspective it's like okay you know this is the horrible world that i'm in what do i have to gain from being visibly gay yeah what can i do to change things it's basically something that he says at one point like yeah and then it it ends on this i don't want to spoil the ending but it ends on this very like profound and moving note and the way that the movie is structured it's this series of conversations but it's structured around the robert character's disintegration you know when the inevitable happens it's both you know incredibly powerful incredibly sad and then you're also kind of like oh well of course it had yeah it had to happen like eventually you, i don't know like it's it's odd you spend the whole movie kind of hoping that somehow it's not going to happen but then it does i mean the film is uh just draped in sadness as well when you consider that the actor who plays robert passed away from aids as well as the writer director bresson himself that's right bresson died in 1987 and there are all these wonderful initiatives happening right now like the bresson project and i really would encourage people to go on the vinegar syndrome website and get this new double feature of forbidden letters and passing strangers as well as to try to find buddies if you can because like the restoration initiatives they cost money Mm -hmm. you know and And they can only continue to be done if people buy these blu-rays and yeah it's just it's just really important that pieces of film history like this stuff that like who's who's going to save this stuff what institutions are going to save this unless unless we support it you know i mean it comes down to individuals like elizabeth who was definitely like pushing this oh yeah and it came out and i think it's probably one of the best blu-rays of the year it's like filled with short films interviews with uh one of the actors like 
This is great stuff. It's like it's like a man's career in a box. You mm-hmm. know? So definitely check that. Next vinegar syndrome sale, you're like, what should I buy? Get that, or just yeah. get it now. Don't yeah. wait for a sale. So as per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Wendell Parker. He goes, Hey guys, long time listener, first time caller here. I wanted to write in to thank both of you for your idiosyncratic perspective you bring to the online film sphere. Outside of certain professional film critics, no other cinema commentators have proven themselves to process your level of insight into the history of esoteric genre and arthouse fare. For the past eight months, you have made my drab overnight retail job tolerable. <laughs> and I give your show credit for reigniting my passion for film after a long bout of depression. Well, I'm glad we were able to help you out with That's that. That's very sweet. Thank you. Not to make things too personal, but Will, as someone who has recently lost both of their parents at the age of 21, I wanted to personally thank you for sharing your feelings of your own tragic loss, which I believe you did on the Michael and Us podcast, I, I right? did, yeah. Th- thanks so much. I, I really do appreciate that, and I'm so sorry for your loss as well. They have helped me better process the tumultuous despair I have been dealing with, and through your own musings on Ozu and Bergman, I found a cathartic solace in their works during this time. Well, thanks so much. That means a great deal. On a lighter note, are either of you familiar with William Cameron Menzies? I think he would make a great episode because he arguably had one of the most impressive careers in all of early Hollywood, while still being a relatively obscure figure. Despite his huge success in production design and art direction, I'm mainly interested to hear both of your thoughts on his directorial work, especially his late career film, Invaders from Mars. Amongst all of the pulpy 50 sci-fi films, that one particularly seems to have fallen out of popular consciousness, which is a shame because I personally think it's a tone and surrealist imagery made it one of the best and ripe for rediscovery. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Anyway, thanks for the hours of entertainment, and I look forward to seeing what topics you'll cover next. I know that Invaders from Mars is like a famous public domain film. Like uh, it, it's not a public domain I film. I thought it was. It's it's owned by the dreaded Wade Williams. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, sorry. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I have seen Invaders from Mars, although I only saw it once and it was not recently. I mean, I definitely like it. It's, it's a beautiful beautiful film it's just got like ripe bursting color i don't think i saw it at the right age though because you weren't scarred by it which a lot of people talk about yeah like if you saw a lot of people a lot of boomers saw invaders from mars when they were kids and yeah it stuck with them forever and i just saw it when i was in my 20s and it was just another movie that i saw but you know william cameron menzies uh gone with the wind he's um (laughs) the one that's behind most of that I mean, I know that he's much more celebrated as an art director than as a director, but Things to Come is obviously like kind of a classic of the genre. I like that movie. Yeah, I, there's uh, stuff to talk about. Oh, there. Uh, Chandu the Magician with Bella Lugosi. I like that <laughs> I one too. That one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's someone I would like to tackle. Even though that, like, when I do an, an art director like that, I almost want to talk only about his art directing if we can approach it from that angle. And update on the director of Gorgo. I was recently at the library and found a biography that he wrote Eugene Lurier and I was disgusted to see there was no chapter on Gorgo oh my god there's a whole chapter about his work on Chaplin's limelight yeah, but, but not on Gorgo <laughs> and he did the beast from 20,000 fathoms and a couple of other things but I mean his he also did he was the art director on rules of the game yeah <laughs> I mean, so he probably wants to write that uh, uh, above like I'd probably be prouder of that than Gorgo I don't know this, um, <laughs> Godzilla ripoff that I did for a British company well thank you very much for the letter uh, William Cameron Menzies, I like the idea. We should put it on the list. And the next letter is from Jacob Vassar. And he goes, hey, Will and Justin, I'm a relatively new listener to the podcast. And like others have pointed out in their letters, I'm actually relieved. It's left me unable to take other movies podcast seriously. That's right. Take that film spotting. <laughs> Are they still around? <laughs> Pro- 
probably. I don't know. You've broken the curse. And for that feat, you get the Patreon money I was previously giving to a podcast hosted by Woody Allen Collaborator Redacted. So go nuts. Woody Woody Allen Allen Collaborator. Collaborator. Who could could that that be? be? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) I have a question, and hopefully it's not too personal, about your viewing habits with your partners. Since your tastes tend towards some particularly uninviting subgenres, do you try to keep a healthy wall between the movies you watch by yourself and movies you watch together? Or do you regularly invite your partners into the disgusting world of cinematic depravity that you've charted and navigated to the benefit of other sickos on the internet? Hey, hey, come on, man. We watch uh, arty films now, too. Well, I mean, uh, she didn't watch any Arthur Bresson Jr. movies with me. If uh, that's I what will you're say that Emily walked into the room while I was watching hmm, Forbidden Letters, and she's like, are you watching a porno? And I'm like, yeah, uh, gay porno. She's like, all right. I've had various interactions like that as well. Like, it, it's not a thing where I'm like, oh my god, I gotta hide it. She can't no. see it. So uh, that would be a bad relationship if I had to do that. No. Uh, but the letter continues. Are there a few subgenres that you know you both like and will be safe bets? You don't have to go into specifics if you don't want to reveal too much about your personal lives. I've always just been curious about how people who are professional movie watchers get that on a business card. No, no, that's so sad. <laughs> professional movie watcher. I prefer, like, I don't know, critic, filmmaker. That'd be nice. Uh, watch them together with their loved ones. Thanks so much for doing the podcast. Sign guy who was formulating a plan to introduce his partner to the works of Jeff Franco, Jacob. All right, Jacob. You know your partner better than me and Will. You will know if they would like Jess Franco or not. I think that's a pretty safe bet, right? Yeah. Like, you know what your partner likes, Will. I have a general idea as well. I'm just going to tell you right now. Uh, I'm she, not showing her Jess she, Franco. She's never seen a Jess Franco movie. She, she would not enjoy she, a Jess Franco she movie. She never will see a Jess Franco <laughs> movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, like... A male gazy mm-hmm. horror stuff from the 70s is not her bag. I know that when me and Emily watch movies, I usually pick ones that I'm like, I have a pretty good idea she would like this. For example, we watched Voyage of the Rock Aliens recently. Oh. An 80s, you know, pop musical that is very similar to one of her favorite films, Earth Girls Are Easy. It's like, yeah, that's an easy choice. Like, I can make educated decisions of what my partner, things that I would recommend she would like or not. Yeah, uh, my girlfriend and I uh, probably, uh, our, our biggest overlap of interest is like old Hollywood. You know, we watch mm-hmm. a lot of classic you know, 30s and 40s movies together. As well as, you know, just whatever new garbage is on Netflix, Netflix as well, you know? You're legally obligated classic, to watch <laughs> classic relationship stuff yeah it's like what's the rock in uh, i guess red notice we'll watch this right i watched 20 minutes of red notice <laughs> and uh i think she kind of had it on while she was doing some work and mm-hmm. uh, 20 minutes was fine probably enough yeah, that's yeah. right i mean you shouldn't try to put uh, your loved ones in a box like if they show interest in something you could be like oh yeah you know maybe you will like this because you know people constantly evolving constantly liking new things but it has happened to me in my life where uh family members have been like oh what are you doing and i go i'm gonna go watch this movie and they're like oh let's watch it together and i'm like you're not gonna like this they're like no come on i i like this guess what they don't like it because <laughs> you probably know people that are close to you pretty well that said i do think it's good and okay to sometimes like introduce your partner to something that means a a lot to you mm-hmm. and to sort of be like i want to share this i want to sh- i want to show this thing that means a lot to me and uh i just need you to take one for the team yeah, this let's time. buckle up and watch emmanuel uh <laughs> in america Black- yeah, yeah emmanuel in america no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna i wouldn't show that movie to my closest friends uh except you obviously. yeah that's right we watch it together 
there's not five and through there, yeah there's there's literally nothing i can't bring up on this podcast mm-hmm. all right so hopefully that's a little bit of guidance there and don't be insulted if they don't like it that's fine <laughs> like if you have someone that's exactly like you in a relationship oh boy they will probably murder you in their sleep <laughs> so if you want to send us letters you can continue doing it at important cinema club podcast at gmail.com what are we doing on our patreon this week will well, it's the summer, and I know that because it's, it's so fucking, fucking hot. hot in here. Oh my <laughs> yeah. god, I'm sweating. Uh, but anyway, we are going to be talking about the summer movie season. Not this summer movie season, but summer movies in general. The mm-hmm. ideal summer movie. We're going to discuss our favorites, what makes the perfect summer movie, and you can listen to this by checking out at patreon.com slash Club. Big screen, big sound, loved it. <laughs> yeah, the movies, they're back. <laughs> so, what are we doing next week, Will? Well, it's definitely not sellout month anymore. Mm -mm. because we are going to be talking about one of America's greatest currently active experimental filmmakers, uh, but a fun one. California's own Damon Packard. Damon Packard? Wait, the guy who did the untitled Star Wars documentary in Reflections of Evil? One of the weirdest movies you will ever see? He also did Fatal Pulse and uh, lots of other movies that have not been and I don't think even can be distributed legally. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I believe Agfa, you can rent a DCP of Reflections of Evil from them. But you should check out... Folks, go on Vimeo or wherever it is and watch Untitled Star Wars Mockumentary. Oh, so good. It's under an hour long. He basically built it out of the behind the scenes footage from The Phantom Menace and added a lot of other stuff. There are quite shocking moments in it. There (laughs) are pornographic moments. So just prepare yourself. There's some ugliness in the film, but it is incredibly funny. We talk about cinephile directors a lot on this podcast, and Damon Packard is one of those. If it was just like a faucet that you turned on mm-hmm. with no control, and it just splattered all over the screen. And, you know, his movie Fatal Pulse, which we're not going to talk about next week, but it's one of his more recent ones. Imagine like Inland Empire meets Tim and Eric's billion dollar movie. <laughs> like Julia Roberts is a character. William Friedkin is a character. William Friedkin is a major character <laughs> yeah. in the film. <laughs> Yeah. We discussed it many years ago when we played it at the What the Film Festival. Yeah, I mean, I saw. I was so glad to have seen it at the What the Film Festival because that movie is like two and a half hours long. Like, it's so great. It's so good. And there were times in it where I was like, I can't take this anymore. <laughs> I'm going to die. <laughs> yeah. it, it's also a movie you watch it in such a grand, big cinema like the Royal. You're like, this should not be here. Oh, my <laughs> like, God. It feels wrong. So that's what we're going to be doing next week. And until then, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. We are so close to getting 600 patron subscribers, only five away as this recording. If you're not a Patreon subscriber yet, don't you want to be one of the last five? Come on, subscribe at patreon.com slash theimportantcinemaclub. We're going to have a special only these 600 people that hit, or if we get over 600, anybody that gets in there before we hit episodes 300, that no one else will get. So make sure to become a Patreon subscriber now. And I would like to thank some of the new ones who just joined, who include Colin Erner, Taylor Marchin, Kevin Vinny, Jack Davenport, Norm Munoz, Bradley Meek, Alex Katz, Michael Larson, Luke Lafferty, Greg McDonald, Benjamin Woodard, Tarek Mabub, Joseph Lorenzo, Stephen Rice, Brennan French, Caleb Clements, Tom Taylor Taylor, Toss West, Christopher Doubles, Philip Cozy, Robert Riot, Philip Jeffries, Patty Delaney, Joshua Barnes, Ian Walmark, Kyle, and Ned Grade. Thank you very much for becoming patrons. We could not keep doing this without you. Hey, Will, you excited for that new Flash movie that's coming out? Only if it has my favorite actor, Ezra Miller, in it. 
they are great in Justice League, Breaking the Speed Force. I mean, it won the best moment at the Oscars. Apparently, it's the greatest moment in film history. According All right, let's see if there's any updates on the old interweb. Oh, no. What is Ezra Miller doing now? So I think, like, is this unprecedented? I don't think I've ever seen something like this where the star of a $200 million movie that's coming out next year. Probably more than $200 million. Like. Just a massive, massive movie is on a crime spree right now. <laughs> that's right. And no one can stop them. They're just in Hawaii right now, apparently having abducted children and, That's right. and causing fights and threatening to kill people and and this kind of stuff usually wouldn't interest me like tabloid stuff but the fact that it's attached to a movie i don't really care about that much well it's like it's it's sad it's not funny it's it's horrible that this is that this person is having this horrible breakdown but what is funny are the executives sitting in warner brothers going holy shit what are we gonna do i mean it it is wild that this movie this movie that they are bringing back michael keaton as batman that is supposed to reboot the whole dc universe of movies this is the fulcrum on which the next 10 years of a franchise (laughs) yeah it's built around this person who is on a crime spree right now Mm. so what are they gonna do i have no idea because they can't just this isn't a case where they can just like it's christopher Plummer, like uh is replacing kevin spacey in a few scenes but it's not it's not like that because this is (laughs) the film is the character's name it's called the flash (laughs) yes they can't just because if they do it all over again that adds a hundred million dollars to the budget but at a certain point they probably will just have to buckle down and that's what they'll have to do right i mean i think okay here's my bold prediction criswell predicts I think... <laughs> and Chris Wall was never wrong. I think they are going to change the title to Batman and the Flash. Mm-hmm. And they are going to cut, cut, cut Ezra Miller like down. Batman! And then the Flash much <laughs> smaller underneath. They cut down Ezra Miller as much as they can. They call Keaton back in, do a bunch of reshoots, really reorient the thing around <laughs> it Batman. It make no sense, though. I know. I know what the story is. It'll be the Flash... Goes into another dimension, meets Batman. They're supposed to be like a Hawkwoman, I think, or a new Supergirl. So like all these characters are supposed to be centered around the Flash doing all this stuff. And there has been predictions that the Ezra Miller character would then like disappear. Someone new would replace them. Oh, they're going to do an Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus oh, on him. Maybe they'll do that. Like my face is vibrating so much. You know, I didn't even think about that. Like, oh, I'm going through all these dimensions and I'm changing into different actors. Yes, I think that's going to happen. Oh, that's... Okay. Okay, uh, I, I, Warner Brothers, if that happens, you owe us a paycheck. We just sold it for I it. want $10 million for that. Do you remember when that Dr. Parnassus thing happened? And we we're like, how are they going to finish this movie? Because he hadn't shot almost anything. Right. So if people don't know what we're talking about, Heath Ledger died after he had shot two thirds of the Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus. And I just remember at the time, Terry Gilliam had that reputation of all of his projects were cursed and mm-hmm. doomed. And this was another example of it. But then he hired three people to come in and Colin Farrell, Johnny, Johnny Depp. Depp. And, and who's the other Law? guy? Jude Law. Okay. And they all they all played versions of him in the And it makes sense in the, the context world. of the movie. Bad movie. Though. Bad movie, <laughs> yeah. Terry yeah. Gilliam, good God. Oh, boy. Uh, again, I think, uh, yeah, this is what this was going to be. The Flash is going to turn into another Flash halfway through. Because look, they're already changing Batman from one Batman to exactly. another. It makes okay. sense. You can go to different dimensions, like vibrating frequencies and stuff like that. Maybe they can figure out a way that it would only add $30 million to the budget. <laughs> I mean, we don't care. This 
his money means nothing. I don't, I don't care. Yeah. I think this movie is just going to be shit. So. Oh, no matter what. You don't think the director of It and It Part 2, the two hour and 45 minute movie, is going to bring it to the flash? I say what they should do is just take all the footage and put it at the bottom of the ocean. But since <laughs> they're be not. like the day the cloud <laughs> Since they're not going to do that, these are my friendly suggestions of how you salvage it. So it'll be like Ezra Miller shows up. He's like, hey, I'm the flash. And oh, I've been hit by lightning. I've <laughs> turned into a different actor. He's gone to his home planet. <laughs> Uh, we'll be there.